Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, just down the road from the Gerald R. Ford International Airport. And if you're traveling to or from the Gerald R. Ford International Airport, and should you be in need of a traveling companion, you can always rent one. Is that a reference to... Yeah. You can find us online at rentboy.com. I'm sorry at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Lucian. I'm sorry, that's Dr. Professor Luke Gaylin. That's my screen name. And I'm not handling luggage anymore, I can tell you that. There was a big misunderstanding. What about the long stroke? Can you handle that? No comment. If I'm going to be in the airport, it's going to be handing out literature, not doing luggage. Coming up in today's show, we have our long-awaited, highly anticipated, and I have to tell you, having listened to it this morning, well-worth-the-wait interview with Dr. Stephen Novella, neurologist and host of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And because we've been picking on the Catholics an awful lot lately, we've got a sex scandal from a Protestant, an absolute atrocity from Muslims, and of course we'll pick on the Catholics a bit more. Yay! But first... Can the right charismatic preacher shut down your brain? There's a lot of things that can shut down brains, but this is one of them. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the study was uh, done by a Danish group. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this, but the lead author is Schjoet, S-C-H-J-O-E-D-T. Mm-hmm. And they have those funny little lines through the things. kind of cute, <laughs> like spinal tap. Um, but the, uh, they were, the Danish group, what they did is they had uh, recorded messages – uh, that were prayers, and that the uh, job of the subjects was to listen to each of the prayers and then rate their belief. But they had uh, their brains being scanned in a MRI machine while they were doing this, a functional MRI, so they could get images of what mm-hmm. parts of the brain were active or not. Right. And so the, they had a Christian group of listeners and then a, a atheist or a secular group of listeners. And, and a, a charismatic Christian group specifically. They well, were trying right. to get polar types. opposites. Um, Extreme differences yes. as, as you could get. And they were told that they were they listened to three prayers that were read. And the, the one prayer was they were told was a non-Christian reading a prayer. Mm-hmm. So the content was the prayer, but it was a non-Christian they were told reading it. The other one was they were told the reader was a Christian, normal Christian, a charismatic one. But then the third one they were told it was being read by a person who is a charismatic Christian healer. So yes. somebody who had special, you know, powers laying right. on of hands and whatnot. But of course, what they did is they counterbalanced the actual voice they heard was a different person randomizing right. each one, so that. It, and these people were all actually Christians, just ordinary Christians. Mm-hmm. Even the one that the researchers told subjects was a non-believer. Yeah. So as you would expect, you know, when they are asked how much do you believe, you know, in, in God or the, the the actual belief things, that the Christian group was high and the secular group was low. But the interesting part of the article though was how their brain responded 
responded to what they were told about the person reading the message. You know, in other words, did there did they actually were there physiological differences in the way that their brain reacted based upon simply who was reading the prayer. Right. Uh, and as you would expect, the secular group, there wasn't a lot of difference there. I don't think it was significant between the three different types, whether they didn't care, in other words, right. who read, who was reading the prayer, they didn't react to it. But the Because it's a prayer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so whether the person reading it was Christian or not, or a healer or not, didn't matter to the secular group. But with the uh, charismatic Christian listeners, there was a large difference between, particularly between when they thought it was being read by a non-Christian, uh, their frontal lobe was was active at a normal rate when you're listening to things. That is the part of your brain that does things like judgment and discerning. Mm -hmm. But when they were told that the reader was a a Christian and then especially the charismatic Christian healer guy, their frontal lobe became deactivated essentially. That is the the, the part of the activity in the frontal lobe that usually does things like judgment went down. Their critical faculties, we could say, were switched off. Also not as significant, but I still think this is important to mention, the charismatic subjects self-reported that they didn't feel God's presence in the prayers that were read by the person that they were told was a Mm non-Christian. Right, right. So we can see even even their subjective experience of what was going on differed dramatically. Now I want to repeat the fact that there was nothing different about these speeches. There wasn't anything different about the speakers it was just whether or not they were told in advance. The expectation. Right. Yes. It right. was all expectation. And, and they mentioned in the discussion too that, that the, hip, the hypnosis link uh, in that – the study didn't involve hypnosis. But similarly, people – often lay people misunderstand hypnosis as being some kind of special trance that, right. that, that right. resides in the power of the hypnotist. What, what they mentioned though is that there's research that shows, again, like this, that the, it's actually – a lot of it is the expectation effect or if you want to think of it kind of like a placebo sort of expectation of the perceiver. If you think that somebody yes. is the great hypnotist or whatever, that gets you a long way towards mm-hmm. – accepting what that person tells suggests. Yeah, and, and that was the point that they really made on SGU is that it's it's that level – and yes, there is hypnosis involved because um, – it has to be for this. It's not going to make you cluck like a chicken. Well, it's, it's, hypnosis. It's, the link with hypnosis is that the shutting down of the executive function in the brain happens also in a context. Yeah, that's what hypnosis is. It, it happens. It happens. Well, I think we should be a little more careful because the same thing happens in meditation as well. Yes, but that it's would a, also be classified as hypnosis. It's a going with the flow. I mean, a lot yeah. of people think of hypnosis as you're walking in some sort of zombie-like trance, but really, what it is is just a different, a, a quantitative difference in your in your going with the flow. And people, yes. there are certain people who are more hypnotizable. It's really one way of saying that they're more able to sort of detach and go with the flow and not stand back objectively and go, wait a minute, what does he want me to do? You know, they just kind of go with it. Right. Mm-hmm. The implications are that many of the people that have these religious type experiences, particularly, I guess, you know, charismatic Pentecostal people, their expectation when they go into a context is probably putting their brain, their consciousness in a state of now it's time to speak in tongues or now it's time to fall backwards and do healing and they're doing it to themselves. The skeptical people are sort of not able to go with that as much. Well, well, but partly too because it was it, – they were given prayers, right? The, mm-hmm. the secular people, people were given prayers and not surprisingly, they didn't have a strong response, a strong positive response at least to hearing prayers. But if it was another message – 
You know, that's why these are the words of Robert Ingersoll or something. The experiment was controlled just fine. But before we start drawing conclusions from this, oh, well, all charismatic believers have their their brains shut down. So atheists are more intelligent, more likely to be critical or skeptical. What we would need to do is redo this experiment in a secular context and see, you know, what happens with executive functioning of a brain when an atheist hears a passage from Richard Dawkins or whether they're told that the speaker will is is a atheist who's skeptical of religion or that this person is a religious apologist mm-hmm. it's possible we might see the exact same effect this could just be human beings natural confirmation bias right. it coming is, into play it's trickier though because with you know with charismatic christians you can identify specifically what kind of thing are they going to listen to you know, or or most likely with atheists you know, there's plenty of atheists who don't care for Dawkins, um, who aren't going to listen to Sam Harris or or whatever. So well, right. what, what that's why you, you would nail need, down. You would need to standardize this. You would do the experiment just the way they did it here. Right. You would say a description about who the person is and what their background is, rather there, than using a specific sure, name. Sure. I wonder if there would be a difference though in that with as people who are skeptics and atheists, another hypothesis would be that they're more used to detaching the source from the content. Mm-hmm. That Good is, point. I'm able to, to hear, uh, to judge, admire Richard Dawkins and say that he's, you know, maybe even charismatic, but that I would say that not everything he says has a gospel truth. Whereas as a believer, yes. you're less trained to separate. Right. You could even tell, I've even had this before, where you say stuff that's not in the Bible and tell them that it is, and they're like, that's really profound. Exactly. You know, yeah. Rather than, evalu- or, or we've mm-hmm. talked about in the show, things that are awful that are in the Bible where the person says, oh, that, well, they're not trained to separate content from source. Right. So mm-hmm. I would even predict one hypothesis would be that the atheists and the skeptics might actually be better at not going with the flow because they still re- re- retain some things like, well, he's a great person, but I'm not sure he has the data to back that up or some sort of you know cranky, skeptical mm-hmm. thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it would be the best way then to control for uh, – to make sure that the religious belief is in effect and not just general critical thinking skills. Um, somehow control for that. Get in your – your sample, both skeptics and believers who have received some training in logic and critical thinking and that sort of thing. But I'd also like to, to read uh, passages that are, well, like I said, passages that are, are, are biblical um, or not and then tell them that they're biblical or not. Mm-hmm. I, I did a study right. a few years ago actually that just got published in 2009 on text – on their ability to recall mm-hmm. things. I think I talked about that before in the show where, where I looked at the text recall of people's you know memory for things and the high right. fundamentalists were pretty good at, at recalling remembering what was actually in a text, but they were actually over good. They read into things and assumed religious messages were there that weren't in exactly. fact there. They were over-detecting. It might be the case that atheists and skeptics, just when they hear somebody who's admired or you know they look up to, they might be more willing to go with the flow. And by the way, you may transfer your bank account money to reasonable <laughs> doubts. You must do it now. Yeah, and, and I think we can get into the, the danger of giving all atheists too much credit because there are plenty of atheists out there who don't think any more critically than than uh, any religious fundamentalist. I think there's a big difference and, and that yeah. is something we need to – We've emphasized over and over again on the show that what are – the values we esteem are those of critical thought, right. of, of rational and science-based thinking. Your metaphysical commitments are, are less important than that. Absolutely. Nevertheless – we could see how a study like this will be threatening 
to some people of a religious persuasion because it quite clearly points out that we do let down our critical capacities when we're confronted with a religious message that fits our own beliefs. Mm-hmm. We discussed other ways in which the findings of psychology can challenge a religious worldview in the last episode. And we're going to continue that on today. But whereas last time we focused more on the scientific method and the naturalistic assumptions of psychology in a therapeutic context, today we're turning over to the field of neuroscience. In 2008, in New York City, there was a symposium, Beyond the Mind-Body Problem, New Paradigms in the Science of Consciousness. And at that conference, several ID proponents that were linked up with the Discovery Institute, which everyone knows is a uh, major think tank for the intelligent design movement. Although we use the term think tank loosely. That's true. Several Discovery Institute fellows were represented there. One of them, Jeffrey Schwartz. Here's a quote from Jeffrey Schwartz at that conference. You cannot overestimate how threatened the scientific establishment is by the fact that it now looks like the materialist paradigm is genuinely breaking down. You're going to hear a lot in the next calendar year of how Darwin's explanation of how human intelligence arose is the only scientific way of doing it. I'm asking us as a world community to go out there and tell the scientific establishment enough is enough. Materialism needs to start fading away and, get this, non-materialist causation needs to be understood as part of natural reality. Yeah, it's about time we start looking to non-materialist causation. (laughs) I'd, I'd just like to see those people at a conference there like, well, we did this experiment and uh, the results you see didn't line up, but that's because there was intervention yeah, from a non-materialist. Right. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, they, of course, what they mean by non-materialist causation is a form of Cartesian dualism. In the ponds? Is that where it is? <laughs> God intervenes in your ponds. Right there above your brainstem, that's where it is. Hello, God of gaps. Right, and that's their entire strategy. They're trying to say that neuroscience can't entirely explain consciousness. It can't explain subjective experience through merely physical means by reducing the mind down to the brain. And so they feel they need something else to fill that gap, and that something else, not surprisingly, is God or an immaterial soul or an immaterial mind. But our guest today, Stephen Novella, has written that reports of the demise of materialism are premature. Stephen Novella is host of the very popular podcast, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's the author of the Neurologica blog and also contributes to science-based medicine. And he joins us today on Reasonable Doubts. Dr. Stephen Novella, thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've written on your blog that neuroscience denial is the new creationism, and that certainly seems to fit what we've been seeing out of the Discovery Institute in recent years. ID proponents like Michael Angor, William Dembski, Jeffrey Schwartz, all of these guys are arguing that the mind cannot be fully explained in terms of the brain. We need something else, some non-physical substance or something to explain consciousness. But you, on the other hand, disagree. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're right. This is the new creationism. The fact that the Discovery Institute is all over this issue, I think, is evidence for that. And their approach is is pretty much the same as their approach to evolution. They take a a, a very much a God-of-the-gaps approach. With evolution, they say there are things like irreducible complexity. We can't explain every step of the way 
in which some complex biochemical system or structure evolved. And therefore, once you get even a little bit past our current knowledge, even though that's a moving target, that's the thing that God had to do, or, or that the intelligent designer, if they're being coy. With neuroscience now, they're playing the exact same game. They'll say, sure, we understand a lot about how the brain works. Sure, brain activity correlates with mental activity, but it's not perfect. And once you get a little bit beyond our current knowledge about how exactly the brain produces everything that we understand as mental phenomenon, that's where there's magic, right? That's the ghost in the machine. That's the dualism, the spirit, whatever. It's not perfectly materialistic. Uh, totally a God of the Gaps argument. Of course, they have to positively argue for their claims. They have to assert some sort of evidence that this non-material causation can happen. But it seems that they have been completely unable to do this. Have you seen any of these creationists attempt to explain how this could happen? No, they got nothing. No, they have absolutely nothing. There's no positive program, right? There's no positive claim. They don't have any way in which they can say or even hypothesize or even speculate that there is some phenomenon which is causing mental phenomenon, right? So that they don't, mm. there's no alternate hypothesis. In, in fact, they, they think it's quote-unquote supernatural, which, you know, puts them outside the realm of science. And, and in fact, in, in this case, I think maybe one thing that's a little bit different than with creationism you know, with, with creationism, they're, they're desperately trying to portray it as a science, right? Mm-hmm. All the way going all the way back to creation science, right? Mm-hmm. And now intelligent design. These are all overt attempts to recast faith in creationism as if it were a science. With, with dualism, they're taking more of a philosophical approach. Right. They're still, t- you know, doing the God of the gaps thing around, you know, neuroscience, whatever we currently haven't explained, that's, that's the dualism. But... In terms of arguing for dualism itself, it's purely a philosophical approach as far as I've seen. I, and I think it's because there is, I don't think they can even imagine what a scientific argument would yeah. even be like. Yeah, what are they going to be studying? Certainly there's nothing yeah. measurable or quantifiable or, or even observable in what they're talking about. But turning to philosophy might be a pretty wise move for them because there are philosophers, even naturalistic philosophers, who feel that there is some sort of problem with consciousness, explaining consciousness, some sort of deep misunderstanding or lack of understanding at this moment. Could you explain for my listeners what the hard problem of consciousness is? Yeah, I think you're right. I think philosophy is a good strategy for them uh, because it's very complicated. It's hard to understand, and even philosophers disagree. You have people like David Chalmers, who is a philosopher, who is, although he says very explicitly that he is completely naturalistic, he thinks he is a dualist. He thinks that there's something about the mind, about consciousness, that the brain cannot explain, although he thinks it is some property of nature that we haven't thought about yet. It's, me, it's really a matter of do you think that mental, pro, mental processes, specifically consciousness, or we, our own experience of our existence, can result from a reductionist approach to brain function. Is it just what happens when neurons fire, or is there something else going on? And that's the hard problem. The easy problem, as Chalmers and others say, is 
figuring out how, you know, the brain controls your muscle activity, how it sees, you know, how it represents the, the universe visually. Uh, the hard problem is why we experience all of those things. Mm-hmm. And Chalmers and, and others have, have used the analogy of, you know, you can design a system that does all the things that we do, that a living system does, in terms of sensing its environment, responding to that environment, even processing information, without having to experience its own existence. And it would be like a zombie. So the hard problem is, why aren't we all just zombies reacting to our environment to pass on our genes? Why are we experiencing our existence? And the second part aspect of that hard problem is, how is it exactly does the, does the materialistic functioning of the brain produce something so nebulous that we don't even really have the language to really describe what it is uh, of consciousness and mental function? That, that's the hard problem. Now, Chalmers is a, is a dualist, but he's a property dualist. He's not, he's not the same type of dualist as the folks at the Discovery Institute. That's right. In fact, I, I had a good chuckle over that. You know, when, when Michael Egnor and others were sort of quoting Chalmers as if that he were supporting their form of dualism and not reading deep enough into the very articles that they were citing where Chalmers said that he explicitly rejects Mike Egnor's position right. and the, the position of the Discovery Institute. So they're just completely sloppy when it comes to scholarship and intellectualism because they ultimately don't really care. You know, when you start with the conclusion and then you cherry-pick for factoids that fit your conclusion, that's the kind of stuff you, you lead to. They didn't read it trying to figure out what he's really saying, because they're not after the truth. They're after supporting their pre-existing ideology. Yeah, what Chalmers is looking for is still something naturalistic. It, it would be in addition to just the brain. It, it might be something like a fundamental force of nature. And I, yeah. I don't yeah. really know how I feel about that, but it is... It's important to point out that he's not looking for a ghost in the machine. He's looking yeah. for something that obeys law-like uh, relationships right. that, that could be studied. And it, it's not that he's just not looking for it. He expressly rejects it on philosophical grounds. So right. if you're going to cite Chalmers as a reference, you know, it's, it's hard to cite that part of his philosophy that is dualistic but just ignore, forget about it, they didn't even reject it, they ignored that part of his philosophy. By those same exact arguments, he concludes, you also have to reject the kind of dualism that Egnor and the Discovery Institute is promoting. So it was very dishonest, selective type of uh, citation. It reminds me a lot of what they've been doing with natural selection all this time. They, they look at it, it debates about to what degree is does natural selection is that involved in the evolution of species versus, you know, perhaps other factors, perhaps uh, mm. ideas like punctuated equilibrium? And they take some, you know, genuine disputes and disagreements to mean that the entire notion of natural selection is, yeah. is bogus. Yeah, they, they make uh, hierarchical types of errors where they're, they're looking at disagreements over the details as if it calls into question the higher-order um, conclusions about what's happening. So, yeah, d- d- dickering about to what extent natural selection versus other mechanisms are important in various aspects of evolution does, doesn't really bear on the bigger question of did evolution happen? You know, did life result from some process of organic evolution? But they make that confusion all the time. Again, they don't have any science on their side. They, they really have no legitimate arguments. They have nothing. So if you have nothing... 
but you want to defend your ideology, you have to make up bogus arguments. So that's what they do. They really have no choice. Now, back to the hard problem. Yeah. You've argued that even if there's still difficulty getting a complete causal account for how consciousness emerges from the brain, the fact that we cannot explain totally how it happens is not the same thing as saying we can't say that it happens. Yeah, that's the same exact kind of hierarchical confusion that I was talking about with evolution. We could have concluded that evolution occurred. In fact, Darwin did, that evolution occurred long before we knew a lot about the mechanisms of evolution. Darwin came to his conclusions before we, we knew there were genes. There mm-hmm. wasn't even a mechanism for inheritance that was really amenable to evolution before Darwin proposed uh, evolution through natural selection. The same thing is true, I think, with, with the whole dualist notion. That, so when we ask the question, is the mind caused by the brain? Sure, we'd like there to be a plausible mechanism of action, and, and I think the brain is an absolutely plausible mechanism of action. But also, what you're really asking is, is there a tight correlation between the two things? And you say, what, what, what would we predict to observe from the hypothesis that the mind is caused entirely by the brain? And the, this common sense predictions you would make are that, well, we would expect there to mental uh, brain activity to correlate with uh, mental activity, that there shouldn't mm-hmm. be any mental activity without brain activity, that if I turn off someone's brain, let's say with a, a powerful sedative, I also turn off their consciousness, their memory, their experiences, everything. Uh, if I alter brain activity biochemically, either pharmaceutically or electrically or whatever, I will also at the same time alter uh, mental function and, and in a sort of predictive way. And it turns out that all those predictions are observed to be true within the limits of our technology to detect it, uh, which is another thing that, you know, uh, that Egnor and others have exploited. They, they talk about the fact that the correlation between brain function and mental function is not perfect, but actually it holds up within the limits of our resolution, uh, you know, if we're using fairly crude technology to look at brain function, and, and the brain is, is operating at orders of magnitude greater detail than, than the methods we're using to look at that function, well, of course there's going to be some fuzziness around the edges. Right. Uh, right? It's like looking at Mars with a, with a small telescope and, and, and trying to make definitive conclusions about the fine-grained details on the surface of Mars. Well, you just can't beyond the the resolution of the telescope that you're using. Right, but as your telescopes get better, you can often explain, you can see with better resolution, and isn't yeah. it the same thing with a brain imaging techniques? Yes, so that, that, that's right, and that's another point I wanted to bring up, is you know, we have to keep in mind that at any moment in time, we have just a snapshot of our scientific knowledge. And if, you say, if we look at scientific knowledge at this moment in time, there are certain things that we do not know, that we do not understand, and that we cannot explain. But in my opinion, that doesn't say much about how robust or successful a scientific theory or an explanatory model is. But what, the far better thing to look at is, well, how successful has this research program, this paradigm, been over time? If it's making steady progress, then that says more about it than where it is at any point in time. Mm-hmm. So the fact is, over the last 150 years, evolution has been hugely successful in steadily making predictions, you know, predicting what we'll see in the fossil record, what we'll see when we look at genes close up, you know, what, we see, what we'll see when we look at developmental biology close up. It's been an extremely successful, and we're making steady progress. We may not have every fossil now, but you know what? The more fossils we 
find, the more we're filling in an evolutionary tree of life. So it's working. The same thing is true of neuroscience. We can't explain every jot and tittle right now, but the, the neuroscience purely materialistic research program is, is progressing splendidly. As our tools get better, we are able to look at brain function in greater and greater detail as our models of how the brain is hardwired and how the different parts of the brain hook up to each other and work together, improve, and become more complex and sophisticated. We're finding that you know, our ability to explain brain function and even consciousness is getting better and better. We're really starting to, to, to um, zero in on which parts of the brain are critical for producing consciousness and what those parts of the brain are doing. I won't say at this point in time that we've solved the hard problem, but we're making steady progress. If there was some fundamental flaw in the approach that we were taking, we would be running up against insolvable problems. We would be going down blind alleys. We would be frustrated in our lack of progress. But that's not the case. The case is the progress has been accelerating. It's really a vibrant, successful field. And that says more than anything else about the success of the materialistic brain-causes-mind paradigm. Totally successful theory. That's exactly it. I think that's the greatest argument against dualism, substance dualism. I mean, this goes all the way back to the beginning of psychology. William mm -hmm. James, we talked about last week on our show, we talked about William James, and he, as a, as a religious person, he was nervous about beginning a scientific study of the brain, of the mind of people, because he was afraid, well, we're going to have to study this deterministically. We're going to have to study this naturalistically. But he said, he said, well, let's accept these assumptions for the moment and see if they are profitable. And if they are not, we can readjust our starting assumptions. But it's been 120 years later, and as you just pointed out, it's absolutely incredible some of the things we're able to understand. Yeah. Mem you know, memory, perception. I think I heard on your show uh, they're trying to – Look in the uh, what is it in the uh, the visual cortex and and start very early imaging of what people are seeing. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, again, that's sort of the low hanging fruit. You look because the it's a, a somatotopic organization, as we say. In other words, the, the the way in which the neurons in the visual cortex are laid out geometrically reflects the world outside, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a picture. You know, there's actually neurons in the shape of that picture acti being activated in your primary visual cortex. So that's, uh, you, you can actually look at that brain function and correlate it to the things that people are looking at. And then the, the studies that have been done so far have been able to predict what people are looking at just by looking at the, an fMRI of their brain function. Still very crude. Again, it's still just that part of the brain that's mapped out that way. It doesn't mean we'll be able to do the same thing for more abstract or you know, correlational parts of the brain, um, that, that may be something that's you know, too far down the road to speculate. We're not going to be able to plug your brain into a TV monitor and watch you dream or something like well, that. Well, that's, that's what the headlines were saying when that article came out, but right. um, it's, it's orders of magnitude away from doing that. I'm not going to say that we'll never be able to do that. I just, I, the way I would say it is it's so far in the future that we can't even speculate about how long it will take to get there. It's not and it's something you can immediately extrapolate from our current technology. There's no theoretical reason you know, that we know of so far why you couldn't do that. It, it may be that the, the, the chaos and the noise is at such a level that it's just not practical. Um, but as you say, the, 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 the starting assumptions, the materialistic, non-dualistic starting assumptions, 
are working great. They want us to give up while we're racing for the to, to the finish line. Right. You know, we're we're going, going, we're cruising along. And the thing that really goes to me about like Egnor and other people is they they keep saying that neuroscientists are increasingly uh, re- reaching this conclusion that the brain is not all that there is, and there's some there must be something dualist going on. And I, and I keep saying like, who are these people reading? It's completely disconnected from reality. They're talking about the occasional dualist philosopher, but if you talk about, if you read neuroscientists who are actually right. in the lab doing neuroscience, they don't even know this is going on. They don't care about the ignore and these philosophical dualist arguments. They're, they're happily proceeding along a materialistic you know, paradigm. It's working out fine, and it's completely non-controversial as far as they're concerned. And it's getting results, whereas non-material causation, good luck, that's not going to get us much of anything. Even our limited results are quite spectacular compared to anything we've ever been able to to get through those false assumptions. Right. Even amongst philosophers, too, they're misrepresenting the state of philosophy of mind as well. Yes, you're going to find the occasional dualist, but – Most people are working, even with the problems of consciousness and philosophy, they are trying to work within a naturalistic paradigm. Just it seems like that's the only realistic route to go for. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm I'm not a philosopher, right? I have no degree in philosophy. I'm a scientist who has has studied philosophy mainly from the point of view of the philosophy of science, right? Mm -hmm. And as a skeptic as well. But I don't pretend to be a philosopher. But, you know, having read fairly deeply into the, the whole dualistic philosophy controversy, my sense is that the real hard problem is that we just don't have a language and mm. therefore the concepts to really describe what consciousness is. And, and therefore it's, it's not um, surprising that we can't put into words exactly how the brain might be creating consciousness. You know what I mean? It seems to be more yeah. of a language problem than a, than a problem of the science. The science is doing just fine. I've heard many say that, that we, yeah. have, we have assumptions even very deeply embedded in our language, right. um, that, that it's just really hard to express uh, the, these concepts at all, uh, let alone get just the right articulation, the right formulation yeah. of them. Yeah, and I, you know, I tend to be persuaded by Daniel Dennett and others who mm-hmm. essentially say that, that that's what the real hard problem is, and that... In fact, if you really think about it, from a certain perspective, it could be a non-problem. You know, it's just the mind is what the brain does. And when you solve all the quote-unquote easy problems, and in fact, you then have solved solved the hard problem. Because consciousness is just, you know, parts of our brain sort of paying attention to, to what the other parts are doing. I think ultimately, again, we don't really know, again, the sort of other question that Chalmers and others raised, why did we evolve conscious? Why didn't we just evolve to be these zombies, these, like, you know, robot type of beings that don't experience our own existence but still could do everything that we do? And I think the answer to that is, and this, will be, this is an interesting question to explore um, experimentally, is I think that because parts of our brain needed to pay attention to some stimuli and not others. Right, right, exactly. And, and it, once, you, once you start filtering out stimuli and taking some information, processing that, in, you know what I mean, and paying attention, that's the roots of consciousness. You know, that, I think, is a big chunk of what consciousness is. And, in fact, that's what neuroscientists are now finding when we look at how the brain works and how, what's the difference between stimuli that we're consciously aware of and stimuli that we're not consciously aware of. 
the brain goes through an active process of, of filtering and deciding what it is it needs to pay attention to, and that's what we're experiencing as our consciousness. So I think in there we have the kernel of where we need, what direction we need to go in to sort all of this out. Um, I don't know that we're, I would say that we have a, an, anything approaching an answer at this point in time, but it's, again, it's, it's, it's right. a perfectly workable premise to, to go by, and it's certainly it's not at the point where we need to start reconsidering, as you say, our premises. It's just ridiculous. I wonder to what degree some of these misunderstandings, I mean, not just, I think, with the the ID folks and the Discovery Institute, this is intentional, this is this is for an agenda, but, but with others who have genuine concerns about what we can learn just from studying the brain about consciousness, I wonder if some of their reservations are that they are just not familiar with how much research has happened in just the past five years, past ten years? Oh, that's definitely part of it. I mean, it's definitely part of it. I, I, and they all, they all talk as if, you know, like we have no idea what's going on, you know. Right. Part of that is, is equating not knowing everything with knowing nothing. That's a common logical fallacy people make, you know. They go, well, you know, we, even, when we, even when we're at the point where we don't know everything, which is at every point since we're never going to know everything, it doesn't mean that we can ignore all prior knowledge that we know effectively nothing, right? We may not have fleshed out, you know, the evolutionary pathway of every single organism in the world. That doesn't mean we have no knowledge about evolution or evolutionary history, about how things are related to other things. It's the same thing. We know a ton about brain function. We really do. There may still be more that we don't know than we currently know. But again, science progresses in a hierarchical way. I think the, the best example to keep in your head in order to understand how science progresses, if you think about our knowledge of the shape of the Earth, to take a really simple example, mm. you know, probably you know, no one scientific or, or even philosophical thought the Earth was flat. You know, even back to the ancient Greeks, they knew that the Earth was roughly a sphere. So at some point in time, we figured out through observation that the world was a sphere. And those observations are all basically correct and came to the correct conclusion. However, it turns out the Earth isn't a sphere, that when we were able to do more careful measurements, um, with you know more sophisticated techniques, um, hundreds you know thousands of years later, and basically at the Renaissance time, we figured out that the Earth bulges around the equator, and right. that makes sense because it's spinning around, and, and that that force will tend to, to bulge it around the equator a little bit. And then when we put satellites in orbit and we're able to measure things down to the centimeter level, then we realize that the southern hemisphere bulges a little bit more than the northern hemisphere. It's a sort of a misshapen oblate spheroid. That doesn't mean it's not a sphere, though. Right, it, the, the notion that it's a sphere is still basically right. It, it was never wrong. It was just incomplete. We didn't really even replace those yeah. previous ways of understanding. We've just we've modified them. We've updated them. Yeah, they've been modified at a deeper and deeper and deeper level, but the more basic conclusions are still correct. The same thing is true of neuroscience and evolution. You know, the basic conclusions are correct, and, and our knowledge is getting deeper and deeper, not just changing and changing. Right, that, that, that's kind of the postmodernism fallacy, is the, is the notion that you, know, you have one paradigm and then it just gets replaced wholesale by another paradigm. But that's actually only, that's only what happens at the very beginning, mm-hmm. when, you, when you first start to really scientifically investigate a, a question. But once you establish the basic knowledge base, then that stops happening, right? I mean, DNA is always going to be the source of inheritance. It's, so yes, we're discovering epigenetic factors. That's really fascinating, but it doesn't mean that DNA right. is not primarily the source of inheritance. That will always be true. We're just no nuancing our, our ideas. Goes. Right. 
So same thing with same thing with neuroscience. You know, the things that we understand that we know now have been so well established that um, you know the really core established things are not going away. And then we have some things which are probably true. We're pretty confident about them, but I wouldn't be shocked if we figured out that we had a misunderstanding about the way they were working. And then there are things that are at the edge of our knowledge that we are pure now just speculation and research where we really don't know what's going on. But that's, we're getting down to a pretty deep you know, and detailed level at this point in time. And most people who are criticizing neuroscience, they have no idea how the brain works. They have no idea how much we know about brain function. So obviously these guys aren't really going to be a threat to, to what you do dealing as, as a neurologist dealing with neuroscience because their, their ideas are never going to lead to progressive research. Right. As far as public understanding of science, uh, public understanding of, of the brain and psychology, how much of a threat do you think these guys really are? Is, is this just kind of a, another lame attempt now that they're losing in the creationist battles uh, with evolution? Now they're moving on to psych for some more turf? Or, or do you think this is a more serious problem? Yeah, I don't know. It depends on, on, on what you mean by that. I mean, I think that they're always going to, you know, for the foreseeable future, be there as a thorn in our side. I mean, their goal is to confuse the public, to leave the door cracked open for their ideology, um, for their religious beliefs, however they, they, they phrase them publicly. And their ultimate goal is to, I think in terms of their ultimate goals, it's not much of a threat, because I don't really think that it's very realistic. Their ultimate really long-term goals, and this is according to their own documents, like the wedge document, etc., is they essentially want to replace the science from its position of institutionalized prestige within our culture with a supernatural approach to knowledge and to science, with their own sort of ideology calling the shots. That's not going to happen, in my opinion. The other thing they want to do is to subvert education in this country. There they're having some mixed success. Of course, the, the education goal is to ultimately achieve their other goal, right? Because if they can convert right. the next generation to their way of thinking, then, you know, when we're all dead and gone, then they'll have their victory. Um, and that's, of course, bad as well. So there's definitely a fight over the hearts and minds of the children in this country. So far, you know, we've been winning that fight. Whenever anything gets to a, you know, a Supreme Court level or federal court level um, court fight, you know, we totally kick their butts because they, yeah, they don't have any, uh, any legitimate points to stand on. But they've gotten very savvy at, at um, interfering with the teaching of evolution and of, you know, the Big Bang and things that they perceive as a threat to their ideology. At the so, same time, though, um, students, students do have to study natural selection. It's easy enough for them to get in high school biology classes. I mean, not, not as many are studying physiological psych, the, the yeah. structures of the brain. So could they make any headway there? Yeah, I agree. So I don't, I don't know how, as I was saying, I don't think this is really a threat in terms of achieving their primary goals. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, yeah, I, I agree. that there, I don't think the neuroscience program is part of basic you know, high school science. And that once you get to the university level, I think they really they have nothing. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're doing the whole academic freedom thing, which does have some legs, and, and they're getting a round of activity out of that, a round of mischief out of that, but I think ultimately that's not going to go anywhere. In my experience, you know, the, the deans and academics or whatever in, in universities totally see that for what it is. It, there are some issues where it's a little bit tougher, but I think with, with the whole creationist program, and once you say that 
this is a creationist propaganda strategy that gets everyone's attention. I mean, right, I think, right. People are on the lookout now, yeah. and it's becoming embarrassing for these institutions when yes. they find out one of their faculty members is is promoting this. So hopefully, hopefully, you know, our past experience with evolution will will help in this area too. Yeah, which is why I, you know, wanted to point out why these are so connected. You know, that the mm-hmm. intellectually the strategies are the same. And it is just an extension of their anti-evolution program, and again, their, their bigger program to re, in fact replace materialist science with their supernatural science, or whatever it is they want to call it. Well, good good luck for them. Right. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Novella, and thank you for your incredible show, uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And, uh, and your great writing on the Neurologica blog and science-based medicine. Oh, thank you very much. Time now for a double dose, pardon the pun, of Stranger Than Fiction. Dave, keeping us abreast of the latest news? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, No doubt most of our listeners are already well familiar with the phenomenon known as boob quake. They have a long memory. (laughs) Wow. We should have just avoided this story altogether just because of Luke's puns. Um, You know how long I've been waiting to use these? Yeah, I know. Um, Well, this was started by, by a skeptical blogger. I believe the blog The Hagblag... After an imam made uh, the accusation that earthquakes were caused by immodestly dressed women. That explains California. I mean, there, come on. There you go. I don't think we should dismiss this too soon. And and Haiti? I don't know. I don't. The Greek islands. So in response, there was, there was a movement by uh, skeptical women uh, to – dress as immodest as immodestly as they felt comfortable for a single day to see if this would cause earthquakes. Here's the great part. It did. <laughs> did you hear about this? Yeah, I saw it on the Daily Show. Boobquake Day. And yeah, and, and by the way, I'm thrilled by how much coverage this got. Yeah. Or uncoverage, as or, the case may be. <laughs> just setting them up. And I'm thrilled by the uncoverage, too. There's a Facebook group where uh, people... Uh, Posted photographs of their cleavage. Oh, I've encouraged them to yeah. start a, a group here. Um, yeah, yeah. and I perused the site. I did not. I, ju- I just wanted to make sure that everybody was really fulfilling their, their that, pledge. That's good. To, yeah. to and, challenge. And, and on the day of the boob quake, there were earthquakes. So this proves that boobs cause earthquakes, right? Because on any given day, there's usually – uh, up to a handful of earthquakes somewhere around the world. There are constant earthquakes on Earth. Well, because God's watching as the as the bra <laughs> strap slips down or the button comes down. There he is with the tectonic plates. You know? I thought you were going to say something about handful, but oh. never mind. No, I was. I was actually going to say I was. Let's wait for the scientific papers to say, you know, cleaving the tectonic plates related to cleavage. And our other stranger than fiction story this week: Noah's Ark has been found. Again. Yeah, again. And <laughs> yet again, again, I remember distinctly in fourth grade, and I went to Christian school, being shown a video about the discovery yeah. of Noah's Ark. That yeah. And that this was – so this proved that the Bible was literally true, and and I wasn't a fundamentalist, but at least it proved that this story 
was true. Yeah. Um, that this was one of my one of my first skeptical moments as a young Christian came out of these yeah. Noah's Ark discovery stories. Um, because my father had a book. I can't even remember what it was called, but mm-hmm. it was something like the Ararat Secret right. or something. And it documented how, you know, there, there were all these photographs, surveillance photographs. Um, you could see a window in stone in a mountain that was the window <laughs> that Noah released the doves out of. Wow. And I remember as a young child looking at those pictures and going, wow, this is not just a myth. This is, this yep. is a real thing. Well, Indiana Jones was there discovering the lost art, right? <laughs> Different art. Different. I kept waiting for like, what's he going to get to the boat? Um, but but then several years later, I was watching CBN, whatever, the Christian Broadcast Network. They had a documentary where they found the ark again. But this one was completely buried underground. Right, and I remember right. scratching my head and going, but they already found it. Yep. And I believe part of the confusion comes in it, because in the Bible, I think it says in the Bible that it, it lands on Mount Ararat in that mountain Region. Okay. It doesn't actually say on Mount Ararat well, and there, itself. I believe there's some historical confusion as to what mountain Mount Ararat is because mm-hmm. it's there are several mountains that have been identified as Mount Ararat. It's there in eastern Turkey and what is it, Armenia or whatever, Azerbaijan, those Caucasus. See, and and uh, I guess this most recent story, a group of uh, Chinese – a Chinese group of researchers, Christian archaeologists, they're calling themselves. Yung Wing Chang from Noah's Ark Ministries International gave the press release claiming that we're 99.9% certain that this is the real Noah's Ark. And uh, you wouldn't really have to go all that far to debunk it. I mean, right. not, not only is the entire idea implausible, um, but the photographs they provided – of the the wooden interior of the mm-hmm. ark that they found has fresh straw on it. Yes, <laughs> this is like spider webs. This is supposedly four thousand three hundred years old, yeah. and it's got yeah. fresh straw. It's got cobwebs in a region where the the weather is so extreme that that is not plausible at all. But it gets even better because they have things like what, like a shipping manifest for this part of ark that was stuck in the mountain. They, oh really? Oh yeah, they have. I they, didn't read. They that. found the truck that actually moved this uh, piece of wood to the mountain. I mean, it, it's oh, right. it's an obvious scam. Yeah, another ark hunter actually exposed well, them. But yeah, one so. of one of the people on the expedition said this is not the real ark, but I know where the real one is. Yeah, Randall Price, one of the guys who was on the team, right, wrote an email that got linked where he was basically explaining how they had. Where they had found this wood, mm-hmm. it was on a it was on a structure far from the site where they claimed to have found it, and they actually hauled it all the way up yeah. to the mountain and put it there, um, so they could take pictures and do their little film documentary. I mean, it's so obviously yeah. a fraud. Palaban Daily covered this and pointed out that this was uh, almost exactly the type of fraud that occurred in uh, 1955 when Fernand Navarra announced that he had found a wooden beam from Noah's Ark and then his guide later confirmed that, no, we we dragged that beam up there. Right, right. So, so um, Noah's Ark hoaxes are a century-old phenomena. At least. It, the one good thing that might come out of this is because you have one evangelical group who's claiming we found the Ark and another evangelical from the same group saying, no, 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 that's not true, is it might actually force evangelicals to think critically a little bit and go, which one do I believe it can't be both arc like you had as a child, Jeremy? Mm-hmm. There's always hope the frontal lobe will rise again. Yeah. 
But it's an issue we barely talk about on the show, and that is pseudo archaeology. This mm-hmm. is this is another instance of a religiously based pseudoscience. This is a, a favorite of Christian apologists. They like to claim over and over again that archaeological evidence has discovered Sodom being destroyed I got into by a fire big fight and brimstone. About that one night where, yeah. where they discovered Sodom. Um, under the Dead Sea or something, and it was clearly burned by brimstone. A lot of those things are like ridiculous, but the, what scares me is that when it happens in Palestine and Israel, because it right. has political implications when you have people digging up like, oh, here's the site of blah, you know, or that dude who's making hoaxes like the Jesus ossuary box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's so much conflict there that if somebody discovers something on, let's say it's Palestinian land, they'll like, be like, oh, here's the biblical site. All these Christian groups throw money. At the Holy Land, right. to, you know, or, or set up like you know new housing for Israeli developers, and it has actual real-world implications. Mm-hmm. Like when you open up an archaeological site, you know, it really pisses can piss people off and cause violence. Yeah, this is true. The thing is, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why there are so many arcs showing up. As a student of mythology, and those of you out there who have studied mythology, you know, there is not just one worldwide flood story. There are do- exactly. This is Utnapishtim's boat or Deucalion's boat. Everyone's reporting it as Noah's Ark, and I say shenanigans. This is just as likely Utnapishtim's boat as it is Noah's. In this time of economic strife, I say if you're really looking for a job and you have handy skills, open up a Home Depot in eastern Turkey. You're going to have lumber <laughs> business <laughs> like you never dreamed. Oh, So, yeah, enough on Noah's Ark until it gets found again. We have, once again, an update on some sex scandals. Insert scandal here. Can't we have like a template that we just – we say some things and then a blank space and then just insert (laughs) new names. A blank has been found violated in blank. Well, well, Jeremy, when you sent out the rundown for this episode, I think you had mentioned having theme music for – yeah, we need theme music now for the Catholic abuse Absolutely, scandal. Absolutely, because it just, it just won't go away. We'll get to the Catholics in a minute. Let's start. Like Boogie Nights or something? Or? I was going to get a Gregorian chant, but Boogie <laughs> Nights, why not? To a disco beat. <laughs> wow. Um, let's start with um, Dr. George Allen Reekers, who is uh, one of the founders of the – National mm-hmm. Association of Reparative Therapy for Homosexuality, NARTH. Yep, he's uh, on the board of NARTH. He also is a founder of the Family Research Council. Good buddy with Dr. James Dobson. I know one of Luke's personal favorites because oh, we're BFF. Uh, he's also a psychologist, right? Why do you have to hurt me? And no doubt you've heard about this one in the news too. He was caught at the airport with um, an indentured manservant uh, prostitute named Lucian. That's his. That's his screen name, at least. Um, and he initially claimed that. He didn't know this guy was a prostitute, even though the guy was hired from RentBoy.com. Right. There's no way he could not to have known that ex- this guy was a prostitute. It's explicit pictures. He just thought it was like uh, you know some some labor. Yeah. He, if I needed to yeah. haul some stuff, what would you look up? You'd look up RentBoy. <laughs> like you know, I need some lumber hauled or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lucian, the boy, the rented boy himself, appeared on CNN um, and did say that no, I did not have sex with that man, um, but it was in his contract to give hour-long sexual massages every day. Mm-hmm. You're kidding. Um, I didn't hear that. No, no, I'm not kidding. Which it was also claimed that Rakers um, reciprocated oh, the massages. See, now that How do you I put that heard. stuff in a contract? <laughs> 
I'm contractually – hey, hey, where are you going, Lucian? You're contractually uh, – <laughs> yeah. read this line here, clause six. They asked Lucian. They said, so you uh, reciprocated the massages? And he goes <laughs> – the quote they had from him was, he's a strange man. <laughs> Wow, the backpedaling was good too because he claimed that. Oh, well, yeah. they, no, he claimed did he claim he have talks initially that he had a talk in Europe to give or that this was like a lecture thing, but then they found that he there wasn't anything. Uh, I, I don't know about that. I know he originally claimed that Lucian was there just to carry his luggage. He had, he had surgery and he needed right. help hauling. Right. His and stuff then he around. found out halfway through the trip that that this boy was a boy. He's a young man. Was a prostitute. Right. But now he's gone back and said, okay, I knew he was a prostitute from the beginning, but I'm like Jesus. I mm-hmm. walk amongst the sinners. That's right. To, to heal them. Jesus spent time with prostitutes. So yeah. Rakers is just asking, what would Jesus what, do? Was it in the contract? He would get a rent boy. To anoint with perfume? <laughs> was that in the contract? There will be a daily anointing and mopping it dry with hair. Yeah. yeah. He is also a major anti-gay speaker and and a speaker um, against gay adoption in Florida, yeah. most notably. He testified as a state witness uh, when and was Florida paid, was considering a gay adoption right. ban. He was paid a handsome sum for that. Beyond just um, advocating that homosexuals not be able to adopt, he also advocated that Native Americans not be allowed to adopt because of the high instances of alcoholism in the Native American community. And, and his argument is even if the people applying to adopt are, do not themselves have problems with alcoholism, like hangs out with like. So they're going to be around um, other Native Americans and these children will be exposed. Um, here's his quote. Because it would not be only them. They would tend to hang around each other. So the children would be around a lot of other Native Americans who are doing the same sorts of things, you know. So not only is he a bigot against the homosexuals, also against the Native Americans. I think that constitutes an argument for not allowing anti-homosexual Christian activists to hang around, to have children because – I, I, in Raker's last, case, if like hangs out with like. Exactly. So many of these people have been caught like with, you know, uh, I'm not a Freudian, but this whole idea of like the, the whole react, the, the projection and the reaction formation yeah. where if you're unable to accept mm-hmm. something in yourself that you just see it everywhere else and have a Yeah, I, a I don't know if I've, I've said this on the show before, but my new stance is that anytime someone gives an anti-gay marriage, anti-gay adoption, anti-gay rights, or is an advocate for um, gay conversion, we're just going to assume that they're coming out. <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, I think that's a fair about, precedent, don't you? Ser- seriously, though, is there any data to suggest that? I mean, uh, I, I've, I've heard that latent homosexuality might be a factor, but I've never actually seen data establishing There was an link. interesting study in the 90s. I thought we mentioned it here, but uh, the author was name was Adams. I think it was from 1995 or six. but they did a study where they had physiological measures hooked up to people and they had them view pornography. Mm-hmm. And, yes. uh, and then their subjective report as well, like I'm attracted, I'm not attracted. And so they had men and women view heterosexual pornography and then same sex. And what they found was that when they divided the men into men that were normal or like accepting, they didn't have a problem with gay people versus the group that was the, the – that part of the portion of the group that was the most homophobic. That that latter group actually had physiological reactions to the gay pornography. So hmm. in other words, homophobic men – self-reported homophobic man watching men having sex in the video, they had a physiological erections essentially to that, but their self-report was disconnected from that. They said that they were disgusted, but they were actually aroused. Now, are we we talking literal 
erection or are we talking like um, other things like increased heart rate, that sort of thing? I'm going to have to look that up. Okay. I thought they used a penile plethysmograph okay. for the erection. Because it, it could be, but the, you know, if they hate this thing so much, they could be erecting strongly that That's one of the counterinterpretations that is yeah. that they were aroused by that. But I think uh, – I seem to recall though that it was like, you know, the interpretation of the study was is that they had a, essentially a latent – uh, reaction to it, but that they uh, self-reported being disgusted right. by it. I mean, there's certainly tons of of anecdotal evidence out in the. It seems like every week there's a new one um, where a politician or a minister or someone is caught doing the very thing that they're they're speaking out against. Or Ted Haggard. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ted Haggard being one of the most notable ones. But this it just doesn't stop and. and you know, part of this is just kind of funny. This guy gets caught. He's a hypocrite, blah, blah, blah. But he has done so much damage against gay rights in, in his times that, you know, it goes from just being this guy's a hypocrite to this guy's a dangerous hypocrite. Well, yeah, these, these conversion therapies that try to yeah. – uh, We've talked about these before. Yeah, try to turn homosexuals into straight people. I mean the, the people who go through those programs – suffer very high levels of confusion, frustration, depression. Mm-hmm. There's been reported cases of suicide. Yeah, we do have data that many of these people are, are worse off than when they started because Absolutely. you know, if you go through years of therapy and you just don't make progress on something that can't change, what are you to conclude other than you're a failure? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you're not trying hard enough, you're not praying hard or enough. And, and you're not just a failure, you're a failure in the eyes of God. You're right. a sinner. Uh, yep. you know. And Rakers is connected to this. He's written the book in 1983 on shaping your child's sexual identity. Um, so many people have been influenced by this guy for, for the worse. Right, and, and NARTH, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, um, which is a group he's uh, he's an officer in the group, they're uh, taking seriously the accusations uh, made about uh, rakers and are currently attempting to understand the details behind these press reports, they say. Admirable. Yeah. Speaking of people who are making great measures to correct a bad situation, and I'm rolling my eyes if you can't see, the Catholics. Once again, the Catholics are now mulling over defrocking abusive priests, according to the AP. Yeah, not long after our last episode came out, uh, the Vatican was trying to show that they, they were going to be more transparent by making their, their procedures for handling abuse allegations uh, made known publicly in an easy-to-read format, not in Latin, yeah. not with um, convoluted explanations of canon law, just laying it out there specifically what's going on. You know, they were patting themselves on the back by saying, look, we are required to follow all state and civil laws regarding <laughs> yeah, regarding um, disclosing child abuse. The well, thing they is, do a great job of it. Well, the thing is most states, most states in the United States and most countries do not have laws requiring people to report sexual abuse. Which like is this. unbelievable. So, really. so it's really following local laws isn't enough. Right. But yeah, as, as you brought up, Dave, uh, some, some Catholics now are debating whether or not defrocking priests is a good idea in the first place. Some Catholics are maintaining that that's not going to help the situation at all. It's actually going to hurt things. And, and why would, why would it hurt things? Well, their rationale is that if a bishop is alerted, they can oversee the priest in question and they can make sure that that priest is removed from any sort of ministry dealing with children. They can watch over them. If they defrock the priest, 
then the priest is then reintroduced into society, right. into their communities where they might go on because, abusing. Right. Many of these cases are beyond the statute of limit, limitations, so they wouldn't be able to be criminally prosecuted. Right, is the idea. So at this point, the only one who can punish them is the Catholic Church, and the only thing the Catholic Church can do is defrock them and send them back out into the community. Well, yes, and they're yeah. claiming that that would be a bad move. I mean, it's kind of a no-win situation. These guys should have been turned over to the authorities immediately. On MSNBC.com, the article, U.S. Catholics Debate Defrocking Abusive Priests, they quote Ann Burke, who is an Illinois judge. From 2002 to 2005, she was on the National Review Board, which they say is an advisory, advisory panel established by U.S. bishops to monitor their response to the scandal. She mocks this idea that they should somehow not – be laicizing these right. priests. Right. She's complained in the past that U.S. bishops have actually obstructed the board's work. Here's a quote from her. You don't find someone guilty of assault and then decide not to punish them. Uh, you must finish the penance. You must finish the sentence. Mm -hmm. And then she brings up, you know, the problem with just removing priests from ministry and not defrocking them is, uh, as the article says, that church leaders have a spotty record of overseeing such priests and then goes on to document, you know, how several cases where priests were not watched properly right. by their bishops and continued their abuse. The kinds of cases we've been talking about over the last couple of episodes. Yeah, I, I find this pretty ridiculous too yeah. that the way to deal with this issue is to then just, just trust them to handle matters they've, internally. They've done such a good job of handling it internally. Let's just yeah. let them keep doing it. Oy. As if the Catholic sex abuse scandal weren't um, dark and depressing enough, um, we've got news coming out of Yemen that is um, – even worse. Yeah, this is a real quick story. Uh, BBC News, Yemeni bride bleeds to death. Uh, it's one of the most depressing things I've read in a it's long terrible. time. I wouldn't even mention it on the show usually except to just point out as much criticism as we give to the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. There's nothing within Catholicism and church law or doctrines that that uh, that glorifies the abuse of children. Right. It's more just the way that they've been dealing with it. Mm -hmm. But we have this story in Yemen, a child bride of 13 years, 13 years of age, bled to death uh, internally uh, a couple days after she was married. Three days to, after her marriage. Yeah, to a man in his 20s. The, the cause of the bleeding was a tear to her genitals, as you can imagine. Now, now the thing is this was reported by an uh, Islamic human rights group that is watching out for this. They know this is a problem in Yemen. Uh, more than a quarter of girls in Yemen are married before the before they reach the age of 15. In 2009, there was actually a law established that made the minimum age of marriage 17, and it was repealed. Though that's the problem. Right. It was repealed because some lawmakers viewed this as being anti-Islamic. And I guess it sort of is. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly the the tradition in Islam. I know that the Prophet had a very young wife, say, uh, much nine years old, yeah, much younger like than the age of seven, uh, age of seventeen. Right. So that's probably part of the rationale. Mm -hmm. Well, did you hear that the uh, the other Yemeni case that's more positive? If you want to have a positive spin, this is the girl who drove herself, who got, took a taxi to the court and demanded a divorce after she got married. Yes, mm -hmm. she's actually covered in this. the time. I was reading about it in Time magazine's like 100 influential people, but she was married as a child, same similar age, right. by her family to this guy. 
you know, but she somehow got the gumption and the independence to like, I, I'm going to get out of this. And she t- took transportation into the town, found a judge, just wa- walked into the court and said, are you a judge? I want a divorce and then explained the situation. And now she's drawing more attention to the whole child bride thing. That's yeah. great. Yeah. The That's more attention we can bring to, to issues like this, the better. The UN is uh, well aware of it. The UN Child Agency quoted as saying uh, they, they're dismayed by the death of yet another child bride in Yemen. They're mm-hmm. aware that this is an issue. But yeah, I mean that's I, – I can't imagine <laughs> we, w- with the Catholic abuse scandal, what we're dealing with is, is people not reporting what they know is wrong. Right. They're doing what they know is wrong. They're not reporting it. In as a situation opposed- like this yeah. – you know, it's a cultural practice to just allow these these situations. Another option, though, would be having discussed the movie Kick Ass, would be to arm these young women with <laughs> weapons and turn them loose on their tormentors. I like that idea. Uh, I, I don't think that one's going to catch on. No, although it's a form of justice that that I can I can get behind. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's depressing. Let's uh, let's talk about some positive things. We've got our props list. I don't, I don't know that we've given out props for quite a while, so this is exciting. So few things to prop. Um, I want to start off real quick just by congratulating uh, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Um, and Skepticality, uh, both SGU and Skepticality are celebrating their five-year anniversary this year and are really uh, – both of them were at the forefront of not only skeptical podcasting but kind of podcasting in general. At one time, I believe Skepticality was the number one – podcast on iTunes, like overall. There wasn't even a category for science or religion at the time. It was just podcasts, and they were number one. So congratulations to those shows, both wonderful shows. We've had Stephen Novella on, and um, a little Swoopy told me that they might be available, um, Derek and Swoopy, uh, to come on this show too. So hopefully sometime in the near future we'll be talking with Derek and Swoopy. Also on the props list this week is Annie Laurie Gaylor and Dan Barker from the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Absolutely. Big they, win for them. They had quite the victory lately. Mm-hmm. Um, a federal judge in Wisconsin. Where they're based. Judge Barbara Crabb struck down the 1952 statute that called for a national day of prayer. Nice. Uh, the She did in her decision write that the prayer events may take place until all the appeals are exhausted. Right. So it didn't take effect this year. No, uh, but it is a step in the right direction. And of course, several people have protested against this. Right. You know, you, you can imagine what they said. Backlash. This is, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Major, major backlash. Uh, Annie Laurie Gaylor was very quick with her response. I like what she said. She said we, we also quoted from Sermon of the Mount where Jesus points out that if yeah. you pray, you should pray in secret to your father. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite. That's what I always use. Love it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Who said that? <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't know what they're talking about. It was Jesus. He wasn't an American, was he? <laughs> was he? <laughs> so she was quick with the response. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, though, on our shit list this week. Yep. Never a props without a shit. That's right. Yeah, President Obama. Mm-hmm. President Obama has uh, promised that they will appeal. Yep. 
Take it um, all the way to the Supreme Court. Yes. So, and uh, the Supreme Court is not likely to uphold this decision. I have this fantasy. Not that, the Supreme Court. I have this fantasy that Obama's on his phone. Maybe it's just my optimism, but he's on his phone to the Justice Department, like, okay, we need somebody to defend this day of prayer thing. Who's your just your worst lawyer? <laughs> Jeffrey Feiger can't win a case. Put him on. Yeah, it. I'd like to believe that's the case. We want you to I try. But not too hard. I guess I wasn't too surprised to see this happening because, you know, he is the president and he's got a kowtow to I, I recognize to the, the tactical need for him to do this and yeah, like not absolutely. piss off the religious people in the country. But does it look like he's really gaining a lot of friends by doing the whole let's talk? Yeah. We right. Can, yeah, we can meet you halfway. And the and Obama has been better on the National Day of Prayer, certainly than than Bush was. He doesn't attend the prayer breakfast now two years. He's he skipped that. Um, and his statement, I don't, I didn't see his statement this year, but I know last year his statement was as minimal as it could be. Like today is the national day of prayer, tip your waitress kind of thing. I mean, it was, it was just simple and straightforward. This year, I don't know what he said, but I just think this national day of prayer, not that it's like, it's not a forced thing. You're not going to be arrested if you don't pray. For those of you listening outside of the U.S., um, I suppose we should. But it's an equation of patriotism with religion. Exactly. We're, they're encouraging everyone to, on this day, pray for the country and their elected officials. And, and it's a clear violation of the separation of church and state. I think it's as clear as you can get. Uh, the government advocating religious practice. And, and what we need to once again remind the critics of this about it, it seems to me like an obvious point, but they seem to fail to realize this over and over again. Mm-hmm. This is not an attack on people's right to pray. No. You can have your national day of prayer <laughs> celebrations. You can – Right. Uh, it just won't be a national recognized the by government the United States government. It. Yes. Get in your churches. You can apply uh, for a rally and you could even do this on government property if you want. Right. Call, call yeah. me an empiricist, but I think that we should do a study where we have like alternate – even odd years – have some of them have the National Day of Prayer and others not. And then at the end of the decade, we'll evaluate various indices of see, see of, how well uh, we're doing. You know, see see whether they had an effect. I, I love it too because you just know all of the the teabaggers out there who are <laughs> about limiting government and blah blah blah. They are up in arms about taking away the National Day of Prayer, it's which like is the, it's like their census. They're, they worship the Constitution when it comes to gun rights, yeah. but when it comes to the founders established the census, it's in the Constitution. Oh, well, I'm not going to send mine in. Yeah, exactly. No. Well, you clearly love the Constitution. It was. Yeah. Uh, well, is that is that all for this week? I think that's all. Uh, until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, challenges, or links to other podcasts that want to start fights with us. Uh, check out our forum at doubtcast.forummotion.net. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Zazzle at slash doubtcast. And we've got a whole bunch of stuff coming up later this summer, so sit tight because we've got we've got stuff I'm very excited about. I don't know about you guys. Tune in next week. We have an interview with Brian McLaren, uh, author of A New Kind of Christianity, leader of the emerging church movement. Yeah. So, and, and your requests have not gone unheard. We will be doing in the near future an episode about Jehovah's Witnesses. We've had an influx of emails about Jehovah's Witnesses, and we will be tackling that sometime in the near future. We make promises that the you know the interview will occur just about as often as Jehovah's Witnesses promise that the apocalypse will occur. <laughs> we just keep pushing the date back. That's right. <laughs> Our next podcast will be in 1914. No, we lied. It didn't happen. <laughs> 1950, 60. Until next time. 
thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time right here on Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.